Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning as we gather together as God's people. Please stand and join us as we sing his praises together. I sing for 
all that you've done for me. Lion of Judah, story with power. 
alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without hope with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was arrested and my life began. Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains. My orphan heart was given My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to death. When death was arrested, my life
Father, it is an amazing thing to sing about the life that you've given us in Christ. We come today in gratitude and thanksgiving for the way you have transformed us and for your presence and your work in our lives and in this world. Be glorified in our worship today. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others here in worship this morning. Especially given uh, the recent challenges that we've faced, one of the most powerful aspects of it is the idea that we can carry our burdens and our the things that weigh us down, the things that uh, are the pain in our lives. We can carry those to God and exchange them. Really, give, hand them over to Him and receive His peace through prayer. You know, it's a way to unburden our heart and our mind to give those things to God and and it's in those times I think where we receive that peace that passes all understanding. Well, we are uh, just one week away from beginning uh, this year's prayer vigil event. Three weeks, 24 hours a day of prayer. And we hope that you will be a part of this. Some of you have been a part of it maybe all in, all the previous uh, eight years. And some of you may, this may be the first uh, interaction you've had with uh, being a part of the prayer vigil. But this year we, uh, we are focusing on some of the ideas that uh, come up in the Minor Prophets, thinking about the nature of God. And our theme is, I have loved you, seek me and live. And so there are various dimensions to the prayer room this year that help us experience both of those dynamics. I want to encourage you, uh, after the service today, to go downstairs. You just go right down the steps to that back corner and take a look at the prayer room. You feel free to walk through, look at things, and uh, to uh, just to begin to... uh, Build your interest in uh, being a part of this prayer event. You also can sign up anytime now. We have a computer in the back. You can sign up or, or uh, online at any time. Uh, one of the other things about that we've just done is we've just updated our website, and it looks very different. And I'm, I'm pleased, appreciate all the people who've been involved in making that happen. But one of the reasons that we... Actually, there are a few things about the new site that are not quite finished 
But we wanted to get it up and running because we've got a much improved calendar, reservation calendar for the prayer vigil than the, some of the struggles we've had the past few years. And so we wanted to get that up and running. So take a look at the website, but also sign up for an hour or more in the prayer room. If you have any questions or any concerns about that, please let me know. Uh, just contact the church office. We'll help you. But um, let's, let's begin also begin praying for uh, that God will make these weeks of prayer uh, significant for us personally and for us corporately as well. I'd like to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings.
As we enter into a time of praying together, uh, I just wanted to mention that uh, we want to pray for the family of Dan Woolsey. Dan has been um, ill for quite some time, and and, uh, he died last night. And so we want to to pray for Dan's family, uh, many of them connected to our community here, and uh, and others who are uh, dealing with grief and pain and, uh, and loss, struggles of life. So let's pray together. Father, it is, uh, it is a privilege to come to you remembering who you are, that you are the great God who heals our diseases, who meets us in our point of need, who cares for us, loves us. And today we come acknowledging that we need you. We pray, Father, today for uh, the burdens and the needs that we bring with us of our own lives, those connected to us, the world. I want to pray today for the family of Dan Woolsey, Kathy, and children, Dan's siblings, Warren and Ella, the whole family. Father, we pray that your grace and mercy, comfort and peace would be upon them. May they know your, your arms holding them in this difficult time. May they sense your peace. We pray this for all of us who struggle with grief and pain and loss and ask for your mercy upon us. We pray for this mercy and healing grace upon all who are struggling with illness and pain and and the burdens of this life that come to us in a wide variety of ways. We ask for your help because we need you. We need you, Father, to meet the needs of our lives. We need you in our relationships. We need you in the work that is before us. We need you in the struggles with temptation that continually come at us. That temptation to trust in anything other than you. We pray that you will give us strength and grace through the beautiful name of Jesus. Father, we think about the ministries of this church, and as we prepare to enter into this this prayer vigil, this time of of intense coming together for prayer, we pray that you will bless this time as you've done in the years past. We pray, Father, that you will give us the courage to engage ourselves in this event and to come with openness and a desire to know you and to meet you and to hear you. And we pray that you will do amazing things in our lives individually and corporately. We pray, Father, for the churches around us and, and their ministries. And today we pray for the North Collins Wesleyan Church and Pastor Justin Leininger. May your grace be upon this congregation as they serve you and as they serve their community. We pray, Father, for our nation, for the, uh, the need that we have as a nation to, to follow you, to to unite our hearts in you. We pray, Father, for those who continue to recover from recent disasters, and particularly the people of Puerto Rico. We pray for those who are continuing to struggle and grieve and, and, and deal with the, the shooting in Las Vegas and, and other acts of violence in our nation that seem so prevalent. 
We pray, Father, for our world. Those places where there are wars. We pray for, for those who are refugees. And the struggle of their lives. We pray, Father, for your church around the world. We pray for Kevin and Cindy Austin in the Czech Republic. Continue to, to connect them with people there as they, as they share the gospel, as they pour their lives into the church in the Czech Republic and, and into the lives of those they connect with there. May they be a beacon of light and hope and of your grace. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Somalia. As news comes to us of more violence in Mogadishu, it is a reminder that the Christians in Somalia have no freedom to worship you, that death is a daily threat. We pray, Father, that in the, in the wake of all that has happened in this country, that your children would have courage, that they would be comforted, that you would protect them, that they would bear witness to your love in amazing ways. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. We offer them in the strong, powerful, beautiful, loving name of Jesus. Remembering the prayer that he teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Nahum. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. The Lord takes revenge on his adversaries and continues his rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but his power is great. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. The earth is laid waste before him. The world and all that dwell therein, who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the mountains crumble to the dust in his presence. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an end of his adversaries. Though they may be strong and many, says the Lord, they will pass away. Though I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. I will break the yoke of bondage from your neck and tear off the chains of Assyrian oppression. The Lord has given commandment about you, O Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the graven image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Your enemy is coming to crush you, Nineveh. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Prepare your defenses. Collect your strength. The shield of the mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots flash like a flame, a forest of spears waving above them. The river gates are opened. The palace is in dismay. 
Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her maidens moaning like doves. And beating their breasts, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters flow away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of treasure. Desolation and ruin, hearts faint and knees tremble. Where is the lion's den, where the lion brought his prey? Where his cubs were, with none to disturb. The lion filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no more be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and booty, the crack of whip and rumble of wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, and this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt. All who see you will shrink back and say, Nineveh lies in ruins. Where are the mourners? Does anyone regret your destruction? And you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile, protected by the river on all sides, walled in by water. Yet she was carried into captivity. Her little ones were dashed in pieces. And her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will seek refuge from the enemy. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep. O Assyrian king, your princes lie dead in the dust. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There is no healing for your wound. Your injury is fatal. All who hear of your destruction will clap their hands for joy. Where can anyone be found who has not suffered from your unceasing evil? This is the word of the Lord. This time, children may be dismissed for Children's Church and Junior Church as we stand and sing together. Tells me of the guilt within, a word I 
I have to say that's probably one of the weakest thanks be to God that I've ever heard come out of the congregation. James walked by and said, that was rough. It was. It's one of those scripture passages. I was sitting there thinking to myself, maybe we should have dismissed the kids before we read that today. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, why did I do the, why did I decide on doing the minor prophets? What was I thinking? You know, you read this prophecy and one of the things, clear things that stands out is that God is angry. And God's just a little bit angry. He's really angry. He's super angry. And when we read about the anger and the wrath of God and the things that Nahum addresses in this prophecy, it makes us uncomfortable. I'll, I'll speak for myself. It makes me uncomfortable. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I have to stand up and talk about that. It makes us uncomfortable because we don't want to think of God in that light. We don't want to think of God as a God who gets angry and who, who displays wrath and judgment, at least not in the kinds of terms that this prophecy describes. And I suspect there is, that may be because we, we really do believe, at least in somewhere in our psyche, what uh, Christian Smith discovered in this long research he did a number of years ago, not that many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, about the, the, about the, the view of God and, and the view of faith in, in, in America and came out that most young people have this mindset or a majority of moralistic therapeutic deism. 
And to be, the, the moralistic part of it is um, God is good. That's all. God is just this moral, good kind of being. And, and he's therapeutic in that he just listens to me and he tells me you're going to be fine and everything is okay. And the deism part of it is he really isn't involved in our lives until we have some problem and we need him to call on him and then we can send him away again. And he, he's like this divine butler, the servant that, that just says, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, what can I do for you? And his whole goal is simply to make us feel good. I read about the woman who was teaching some some uh, students about through the Gospels, some Christians, some not. And they went through a number of the, all the stories in the Gospels. And, you know, some of those stories are hard to understand. And Jesus has some hard things that he says. And when they got done, he, says, he said to some of the, the Christians there, so what do you think? And one person raised their hand and said, I don't know exactly how to say this, but this doesn't seem like the Jesus I always learned about. This Jesus doesn't seem very nice. And there is this mindset that we have about God, that God is nice. And by nice, we mean God just does for us whatever we want him to do. And the image of God that we tend to think about, the image of God that we really want to think about, is a God that, quite frankly, looks a lot like us. And Nahum paints this picture of God who is not like us. God is angry because, quite frankly, he takes evil and the consequences of evil seriously. The nation of, nations of Israel and Judah have turned their backs on God. Uh, at the time of Nahum's prophecy, Israel has already uh, been, uh, been basically destroyed. And Judah is not all that much better. And God brings the Assyrians to, to punish Judah, to, to wake them up to their sin. And the problem is the Assyrians go too far. The Assyrians don't just come and punish them. They, they want to annihilate them. And the Assyrians, as we talked a couple of weeks ago, talking about Jonah, and we'll get back to Jonah in a second. But the Assyrians are some of the most ruthless people on the face of the earth. Their cruelty knows no bounds. They are the very definition of inhumane. In fact, when I read the stories about the things that they do to people they capture and to their enemies, it turns my stomach. It is not the kind of things you can talk about in a setting like this. It is brutal. It's horrible the things that they do. And God is angry because he's saying, look, I'm not going to stand for that. I'm not going to stand for evil. And Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, is, is committed to this, this lifestyle of violence. And they're proud of it. They write it in their annals of their kings so that everyone will know, look at how cruel we are and you fear us. But God takes evil seriously. And he takes the consequences of evil seriously. And so he steps in at this moment and he says, enough is enough. Now, there may be a certain level of hyperbole in the, in the prophecy. I mean, we all, if, if you're a parent, there are times where we use a little bit of hyperbole with our children. We do that to get their attention. 
And God is trying to get Nineveh's attention and to say, look, this is serious. As, as I read somewhere, someone said, this is not a time for God to just send them a Hallmark greeting card. This is serious stuff. This is, this is a snake about to attack our children. And when you see that, you don't try to talk the snake out of it. You act. Now, I mentioned Jonah a few minutes ago. And, you know, I have a feeling that Jonah's thinking to, if Jonah were alive at this time, and Jonah's about 100 years before Nahum, but I'm suspecting Jonah would have said, why couldn't that have been my prophecy? Why couldn't I have been the guy to say that? I would have loved to have said that. I would have, I, would have, I would have cherished being able to say what Nahum gets to say. But he doesn't. And Nahum, but, but what we find is that in the prophecy of Jonah, Jonah's saying, Lord, you've got you to have justice. You've got to care about evil. You've got to do something about it. And, and God says, well, I want to give them a chance. And he's given them a chance. And now a hundred years later, though they repented at the time of Jonah, they have turned back around again. And some suspect that their evil may even be worse. But it doesn't mean, God being angry doesn't mean that God has has now changed his character. You will notice in in chapter 1, verse 3, that um, he says, The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great. He never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the windstorm, wind, whirlwind in the storm, the billowing clouds of the dust beneath his feet. And he goes on in those next few verses to talk about his power. But the beginning of that is, the Lord is angry, but the Lord is slow to anger. He has given Nineveh a hundred years to change their minds. Dennis Kinlaw says that the... the the Hebrew language likes to turn abstract ideas into concrete ideas. And so the text doesn't really say he is slow to anger. What it says is he is long of nose. And to be angry is to be hot-nosed. And so what he's saying is God has a long nose and it takes a long time for it to get hot to the very end. And I read that and I thought, well, that must be why I'm so patient. But God, he says, God is slow to anger. It takes a long time for the heat to get to the end. But eventually it does. But not without patience. Look at the scriptures. God is slow to anger over and over and over again. To Pharaoh, nine plagues. He gives Pharaoh a chance to change his mind before bringing the angel of death. The Israelites wander around the wilderness complaining and complaining and whining and saying, we want to go back to Egypt. And God is patient with them. God tells Abraham that the reason his his people are going to be in slavery for 400 years. Why is that? Because he wants to give the people of Canaan a chance to repent. He's slow to anger. He is merciful. But eventually, the day comes when God says, it is clear to me, nothing is going to change, and I need to act on that. It took me a while. I didn't see this for a while. It's funny. It's right. Some things, you know, they're right in front of your face. But I I was reading through this prophecy and thinking about it and studying it. And it, it wasn't until the middle of this week that I saw, that struck me. 
the very first words out of the mouth of the prophet are in chapter 1, verse 2. And he says, the Lord is a jealous God. The Lord is a jealous God. And when I saw that, really for the first time, it jumped out at me. I realized, I think this is maybe, well, the key to the whole prophecy. The very first thing he says is, Yahweh is a jealous God. Now, that's hard for us because we have a tendency to misunderstand what it means to be jealous. To us, jealousy is being petty, being selfish, controlling. That's how we think of jealousy. But uh, as John Oswald says, the, the word that we translated jealous here is actually to, to be passionate about. It, it is a word that we used to use, and King James Version of the Bible uses it, that says that it means to be zealous. It means to be energetic, to be passionate, to get involved, to do something, to be active, to care enough to do something about it. And that's what this means. To be jealous is to be zealous, to care, to be passionate. And and Kinlaw says it's a word that really is connected to the whole idea of marriage. You see, think about when two people stand in front of the church and say their vows to each other. They are saying, you will be the central person in my life from now on. And I will be zealous, I will be jealous about protecting our relationship. And we will do everything we possibly can to make sure that things on the outside, things that, that, that may want to get in the middle of us, don't. And we're going to be jealous about that. When I read that, it struck me that maybe, maybe they're they're the most important and maybe often neglected words in a wedding ceremony are the words that take place after the giving away and after the the vows and after the rings. And and the minister stands up and says, now that they have joined themselves together by the by the stating of vows and the giving of rings, I declare to you now that they are husband and wife in the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit. And then he says, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Those are words spoken to the people watching this take place, to the witnesses. And what that really is saying is, to those of you who are watching this couple come together, be careful. Be careful about not doing things to get between them. Be careful about protecting their relationship. You be just as jealous for their relationship with each other as they are. And God says, I am jealous for my people. And God isn't just jealous for his people because they're so special. He's jealous for his people because it is through them he's going to accomplish his purposes in the world. God's great dreams and plans for the world from the very beginning were flourishing. Life, joy, peace, all of the goodness of who he is poured out upon us. And our sin has marred that and twisted that. And evil is continually fighting that. And God says... I am jealous for my people and for my purposes. And I am not going to allow evil to defeat that. 
Sometimes it looks like it. Sometimes it appears as if evil has all the power and evil is, is, is tearing apart God's people and God's purposes and they'll never be accomplished. And maybe this is one of the reasons why God is so emphatic and, and he is so graphic in this prophecy is that he is declaring to everyone who reads it, I am still greater than any evil that comes against you. It is interesting that this is a prophecy that's not in the scriptures of the Assyrians. It's a prophecy that's in the scriptures of the Israelites. You would think it would be a scripture for the Assyrians because it's directed to Nineveh. But it's in the scripture of God's people because it is ultimately a word for God's people. It's a word for you and me. It is a word that says to us in the midst of a world in which it looks like evil has all the power, when it looks like evil is winning and it looks like evil is crushing all of God's plans, it's not true. God is bigger. God is enough. And no matter what evil wants to do, and no matter what evil seems to do, God is greater. God is bigger. This prophecy is really good news. It, 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 it struck me as such an odd thing that when you get to the end of chapter 1, and all of this stuff about what God's going to do to the Ninevites, he says, look, there on the mountains, the feet of on one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. It's, he's echoing the words that you hear, you read often in the prophet Isaiah, who says, how beautiful in the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And there is no other. It's interesting that when Jesus is born, the angel says to the shepherds, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. And when Jesus begins his ministry, he says, quoting the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. And he can do that. And we can proclaim that with confidence because God reigns. It is a word of hope. It's a word of joy. It's a word of blessing. It's a word of grace to us in a world that is continually fighting us. And in a world in which evil seems to have control, God is saying it's not true. And you live in that hope. And you claim that hope. He's enough. But I think this good news is also a call to us. It's a warning to us. It, it, it's a direction to us that we reject violence as the means to accomplish anything for the kingdom of God. Now, when we talk about violence, we, you know, especially in this passage, what we're typically thinking about is, you know, acts against people physically. I suspect most of us are not going to, to hold a gun to someone's head and say, become a Christian. We don't use our fists typically to, to get our message across. 
what we tend to do is to use our words. And I think one of the definitions of violence that we can use is that violence is anything we do that hurts another person from any motive but love. I mean, sometimes as a parent, we have to hurt our children. But, but it's, it's a loving thing that we do if we do it from a heart of love. But it's violence if we do it from any other motive. And sometimes we have to say hard things and we speak the truth to people. But it is not loving if we do it from a heart other than love. The hard part is our, our culture is so enamored with violence. In fact, we, violence is so much a part of our lives, we don't even realize it's a part of our lives. We have become so jaded to it and, and so acclimated to it. And yes, it, it, appalls, us, it appalls us when when we read about these shootings, but we move on. I mean, I, I was thinking about this. It, it is this sense of, I think it's because we believe as Christians that we can, we can say what we need to say, whether that comes out of our mouths or the keys on our computer or buttons on our phone, because we're right. We have the truth and we're right. And when you're right, you have confidence to say whatever you want to say. What's interesting to me is that the Assyrians are right. God calls Assyria to come and and punish Judah. They don't think of this on their own. Scripture is clear. God says, I've I'm using Assyria to wake you up, Judah. I'm using Assyria to, to open your eyes and to punish you so that you will turn back to me. The problem is Assyria believes they're right, and they believe that because they're right, they can do anything they want. And I've encountered people, Christians, who because they believe they're right, they can say what they want to say, do what they want to do. We justify that. And often it comes down to this mindset of we have to win. We're right. We have to win. We have to let people know that we're right. We have to, and whatever it takes to do that, we will do it. Now, does that mean that we don't stand up for the truth? Of course we do. Part of our calling is to stand up for the truth, but we stand up for the truth in the right way. I mean, if sta- standing up for the truth, simply saying to people, I want you to know that I'm right and you're wrong, or standing up for the truth saying, I want you to know Jesus, who is the truth. And those two motives take us in very different directions. And our words, our words can hurt and cut. And whether we're talking about something spiritual or we're just simply talking about life, there is something in us that believes I'm right. So I can say what I want to say and do what I want to do. And I think God is is warning Israel when all the dust settles and I've taken care of Assyria. Don't do what Assyria has done. Don't act like I'm not your God. Now, the, you know, the thing going through our minds is, 
well, if, you know, look at God. God is violent and God is, is angry and God is doing these things. And, and, you know, if God can do it, then we can do it. And that's simply, then the next question, next thing we have to say is, uh, our anger is not God's anger. God alone is the judge. God says, vengeance is mine. And a lot of people interpret that as, well, God is a vengeful God. But the context of it is God is saying, vengeance is mine, not yours. You leave that to me. I want you to be a presence of my grace and mercy like I've been to you. Think of often about the difference between Jesus' anger and our anger. Jesus doesn't get, we get angry when we've been hurt or embarrassed or ridiculed or manipulated or taken advantage of. When Jesus is hurt or ridiculed or taken advantage of, he opens his arms and dies. He surrenders himself. He sacrifices himself. Jesus gets angry about things that are happening to other people, things that are happening to innocent people, things that are happening to people that are drawing them away from the kingdom. That's what makes Jesus angry. And at some point, God's people have to be a voice in this world of violence to say, we refuse to join. We refuse to accomplish things the way everybody else seems to accomplish them. As we talked last week, we're about the journey, not the destination. Because if our focus is just the destination, then the end justifies the means. Whoever I may have to trample over to get there, so be it. I've got to get to the destination as fast as I possibly can. But when our mindset is the journey, people matter. How we do things matters. What we say matters. How we go about standing up for the truth and representing God and his kingdom matters. Because it matters to God and it's, it's the image of Jesus. I got to be honest with you. This is one of those, those parts of scripture that quite frankly... I'm not sure, I mean, I don't feel like I've gotten to the place where I've answered all the questions. And you're probably sitting there thinking the same thing. But what about this and what about that? And here's the bottom line. I don't know the answers to all the questions. The truth of the matter is, there is a mysterious nature to who God is and what God does that part of it we are never going to fully understand. We cannot answer all the questions. But we are called to trust, even if we can't answer all the questions. We are called to trust that God is who he says he is, that God is good, that God is full of grace, that God is merciful, that God is in control, that God knows what he's doing. We are called to trust him. And we can trust him. Because God's ultimate response to evil. God's ultimate response to evil is the cross.
It's on the cross that Christ takes upon himself everything evil can throw at him. And he wins. And he proves that God is the king. And we can trust him. John Oswald says that sometimes when we think about the love of God and the, the fear and the, and the wrath of God, we, we have a tendency to see them as, as two ends of a spectrum that are completely disassociated from each other. But the truth of the matter is, when we read the scriptures, they are intimately connected. And he often says in his classes, if the, if the little God that lives under your bed says he loves you, doesn't really mean that much. But if the sovereign, righteous, holy God who can, who can burn you to ashes with just the look of his eye says he loves you, that can transform your life. Gracious Father, so many questions we wrestle with, so many things that we don't understand. But we know that you are God. And today we declare that we trust you. We trust you enough to hope in you. We trust you enough to follow your ways. Transform our hearts to deeper and deeper levels of trust through the grace of Christ. Amen. Please stand as we sing together.
you and invite you to take a moment, go down to the prayer room and uh, just begin to sense uh, what that's going to be about and to uh, sign up for your hour of prayer. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.